Feminist Coffee Hour. You can find us online at feministcoffeehour.com, on Twitter at femcoffeepod, or you can send an email to feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. I'm Elizabeth. Karen's taking a little bit of a break. And tonight we're welcoming back to the show Jocelyn Carr, organizer and activist here in Queens in the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. Welcome back to Feminist Coffee Hour, Jocelyn. Yeah, it's good to be back. Thanks for having me. Last time we had you on the show was actually almost a year ago. It was last December. And unfortunately, you did not win the Democratic primary for city council. But tonight, I think you're here to talk about an important victory that you've recently been a part of. Can you tell us about the New York Taxi Workers Alliance, who they are and what they've been doing? Absolutely. The New York Taxi Workers Alliance has been a household name for me for many a year. And they're a union that represents almost 20,000 taxi drivers across our city. It's spearheaded by the inimitable Beta V. Desai, who began organizing in her 20s. And I see a lot of myself in her too. And she spent a lot of her time at taxi stands organizing taxi drivers. And since 1998, they've been shutting down the streets. And many, many years later, we've now clinched an incredible life-saving victory with a taxi medallion debt relief program that will be rolling out over, over the next year citywide too. The tactics that you used were somewhat extreme. You were on hunger strike for, for quite a while and other people even longer. What made the organization decide to, to take that measure? That's right. Yeah. You know, I was on eight days worth of hunger strike before my own health deteriorated, but I was sitting alongside people who went the full 15 days, people like Richard Chow, who is 60 three years old, uh, has additional health complications and was incredibly committed and disciplined to to doing this hunger strike. But, you know, I think as as organizers, you know, we really understand the tactic of escalation, right? That if we are, if it's incumbent upon us to make sure that Mayor de Blasio doesn't leave his post without giving us and uh, giving us what we deserve, then we have to take whatever measures necessary. The, The member capacity of the New York Taxi Workers Alliance is such that you message, text bank, phone call, or WhatsApp message a driver to come down to an action and they will be there. So we knew we had the bodies, but if it took actually shutting the street down in its steps, we were going to do that. We knew that we had to risk our health because already the taxi medallion crisis is one that's already between life and death. So drivers were willing to sign up for a hunger strike, whether it was 24 to 48 hours or the full 15 days, however long it takes. And that's the mindset we went in with, that victory is going to happen one way or another, but we are going to put ourselves in the front lines, especially given the immense success that the Fund for Excluded Workers had just earlier this year. So what were the demands that you put forward and, and what was met by the city? It's actually pretty incredible. We're, we were very close to meeting almost every single demand <laughs> is written into the current uh, citywide plan that was signed by Mayor de Blasio. This is not necessarily a legislative win. This is more of... Um, a budgetary agreement that came out of intense negotiations with a lot of lenders who have been involved in managing these loans or medallions that taxi drivers have been holding for decades at this point. And so it included a city-backed guarantee, uh, which is a means of protection for drivers in case they default on these loans. And this is especially critical because the average driver is about a half a million dollars in debt. So having that protection in place is really key to making sure that drivers can continue to afford housing and healthcare and education. We also wanted to reduce, you know, place a cap on uh, the actual debt payments that people have. We were able to get it down to $170,000. 
And drivers will be getting an additional $30,000 out of the citywide budget to uh, support some of those payments back. And so there will be 5% interest over the next 20 years. There will be a maximum monthly payment of about $1,100. So this is really a, a debt restructurement that was really an incredibly well-thought-out financial plan that our ingo- incoming and outgoing controller have approved. And it's, it's really going to change people's lives. It sounds like an amazing victory. Congratulations. It, it feels amazing. I'm still on cloud nine, like three weeks later. Mm-hmm. How do you think that Eric Adams and the new city council coming in are going to honor this agreement or continue to help the taxi workers? Or do you think you'll have yeah. more problems with them? I think with, you know, we have a, a very historic city council that's coming in, a new speaker that's to be determined. And with Eric Adams, it's become at least clear to me that there will be a commitment to uh, seeing this program through um, his administration. So there's not as much worry there, but I think with the, with the groundbreaking victories that we had in our city council, even if it doesn't include me, I'm really thankful that Shahana Hanif in Brooklyn and Shaker Krishnan in uh, Jackson Heights are carrying this mantle forward. They're really have their hearts set on making sure that a taxi driver gets a seat on the taxi and limousine commission TLC, which has been at the heart of this taxi fight. So we have a lot of champions who are really going to make sure that this budget that, you know, is that deciding that budget is one of the most important roles of a council member and a mayor. We're quite confident that we'll we'll have them as allies uh, in the next year. This was a very across party lines, you know, across political difference kind of decision that we just had in the, in the past month. Well, I'm glad that you're feeling optimistic about that issue with regards to the city. Oh, I was going to say, are there any um, links or news articles that you feel particularly covered the issue of the taxi workers particularly well or anything particularly poorly? Yeah, a lot of reporters began to redescend into this issue, which I think was really great. I think the New York Focus, uh, an article by Wen Zhuang, was a particularly thorough article that outlined not just the desperation of drivers, but the backroom dealing that happened between private lenders, between brokers, who really made over $855 million in profits off of this entire scheme. And it goes as far back as the Bloomberg administration in 2001. So I think that article was a really great comprehensive look, not just at the history of this issue and, and the financial decisions that came out of that, but also how agencies like TLC retaliated against lawyers who were trying to defend many of these taxi drivers, one of whom is a dear colleague of mine, Randy Wilhite, who's just been an incredible advocate for our drivers. I wanted to talk about how a lot of the issues of your campaign, I think, are are moving on regardless of, you know, the electoral outcome. And a couple of them I was really interested to hear about, like, from what Queen's DSA is doing and from what other people are doing. One was the idea of single-payer health care in New York State. I think it's called the Health New York Act. Is that right? New York Health Act. New York yeah. Health Act. Okay. Sorry, I got it backwards. Um <laughs> And it does have wide support among among many of the people of the legislature. Do you think we have a, a chance of getting that passed with Governor Hochul or there's an election coming up? There is an election coming up, which means that, you know, typically uh, elected officials are a little bit more prone to, to make important decisions. We all know that, right? Mm-hmm. And when it's time to get primaried, it's time to make some big decisions. <laughs> and I think, uh, you know, my colleague Jabari Brisport has been doing an immense amount of work on trying to get improved childcare statewide. Senator Rivera has also is really hitting the ground running on making the New York Health Act a priority issue next year. 
you know, there's many a challenge coming up in 2022. It's going to be a really exciting, if not exhausting uh, year next year. But I think if anything, the COVID-19 pandemic has, we've, we've, you know, used these talking points a million times that it's exacerbated existing issues. Right. But you know, myself, I'm going to be aging out of my parents' healthcare uh, next year. So I'm going to, I'm going to be watching that really closely. And I think that What's been proven, especially with the leadership of Sahran Ramdani with the Taxi Workers Alliance, is that bills just don't get passed, right? You have to organize your colleagues um, to move them forward. So I think we have a decent organizing base of people who are who are going to try to really push Hokel on this next year. And I think you can see with what's going on right now with like the idea of the great resignation. So many people are are leaving their jobs for something better, right. like workers are making demands, even on an individual level. And right. some of those people are people who are minimum wage workers who don't want to put up with that anymore. And some of those people are fairly well off white collar workers who are just saying like, I'm sick of this. I'm not taking it. I was able to save up some money during the pandemic from like working yeah. at home for a year or two. And in either of those cases, uh, to me, it just seems like a no-brainer to have single-payer healthcare for just from a humanitarian stance to take care of the people of the state. But also, like if you want to make like a, a monetary argument about it, I feel like it stifles innovation to to chain someone to a job mm. for healthcare. Someone could have a great creative, philanthropic, business, computer idea, technological advancement, and not be able to quit that job, mainly because of healthcare. And that's Right. You know, we don't know what voices that we're missing out because of that. It's just limiting people's potential. And in addition to being cruel and, and having people mm-hmm. suffer from lack of health care, I really do hope that passes for, for a number of reasons. The other thing that's pretty exciting that's coming up probably will have already happen by the time this comes out, but there's going to be a March in December for free CUNY. So that's pretty exciting, that campaign. Do you know anything about that? Oh, yeah. So with Democratic Socialists of America, New York City DSA, we made uh, the New Deal for CUNY a priority campaign for ours over the course of the next year, which means that we are throwing our weight with wide DSA, which is our um, college arm uh, and university student arm of DSA. And it's for us to win back a fully funded CUNY. We just got a huge, you know, millions of dollars in relief for, for CUNY to help support other infrastructure demands. But the PSC CUNY, the CUNY Faculty Union's contract is almost going to be up next year. And it's really important that we organize not just for a tuition-free university the way it used to be in the 60s and 70s, right, but also for protection for our faculty who are unionized but are demanding double the wages because our adjunct faculty can hardly even afford to live in this city anymore. So, you know, we're thinking about that. The New Deal for CUNY really ropes in mental health services for students as well. And, you know, I, I really think that if you don't take care of the faculty, students suffer. If you don't take, take care of students, faculty suffer, you know, our, you know, victories are inherently linked. So it's a really inspiring movement to see college students emerging to make these huge political demands of our, of our state legislature. Yeah. And it's really inspiring to see people try to take control of, of their education of the future of the city and the way higher education goes. Exactly. You know, I'm a, I'm a CUNY grad myself. I, I remember what it was when I had a a $300 balance uh, for tuition that I couldn't afford because I took out an extra year of college and FAFSA didn't cover that. And I had to fundraise to pay off that amount. And that's thousands of dollars for some students who are working, parents, immigrants who have children, right? You know, this is like right up the alley of of the New York Health Act, right? These are basic principles of dignity that we just (laughs) have not cleared quite yet, but I'm hopeful. Yeah, me too. 
Something else I'm thinking about is what direction do you think the city council is going to go next year with regards to the NYPD and possibly Mm. defund? You know, a lot of pundits are (laughs) speculating, right, on whether defund is just a slogan or if people really care anymore about police reform. But I think that given the track record of our incoming mayor, Eric Adams, discussions around bringing back solitary confinement under Mayor de Blasio, how, you know, we're seeing an immense casualty and uh, increase in incarceration and just what that has done to black and brown Americans across this country. I think that with the left-leaning progressive council members that we have coming in next year, there will be a sizable block who can organize for a, a budget that actually holds police accountable, will increase the power of our civilian complaint review board. But I don't think that's going to come without a little bit of backlash, right? We have even at, however small it is, it, it, with about four or five members, we will have the largest Republican delegation uh, in our city council that we've ever had in New York City. And that should signal a lot of you know, alarms to New Yorkers that our demands will be watered down and conformed and contorted in the worst possible ways to fearmonger and brew up anxiety in New Yorkers that defund is going to make our communities more unsafe. But we know the opposite is true, right? So- we're going to have some opposition, but I think that it's a necessary fight that we'll have to keep just plowing into. Linda Lee is going to be our next city council person, and she recently did an interview with City and State, and she talked about a bunch of different things. And one of the things that she said is that she'd like to sit down and talk to you. Do you think that's going to happen? Yeah, you know, I've been in touch with Linda Lee throughout the course of primary election cycle. You know, I congratulated her on her win uh, when the primary results were were certified too. And, you know, I think that you know, she's going to be my next council member. I want to have her ear on so many of the important pieces of policy that we that, that I ran on over the uh, course of the past year. So I've, I've spoken with a few of our volunteers who have some demands and, and things that they'd like to bring to Linda's attention. I know the holiday season is coming around, so I'd really like to sit down with her at least before the end of the year. Mm-hmm. And I think that you're right. I think that um, the share of votes that you garnered and also the share of people who probably rank you, even if they put her ahead of you, is huge. I hope that she definitely listens to you. And I think that you could probably be pretty persuasive on a lot of the issues that we're talking about now. Right. I mean, think about just, you know, the army of people that we were able to bring out. There's an, a, a natural base of people who support the both of us. But I think that, you know, we really proved that, uh, you know, even if some folks don't didn't even think that this campaign was viable from jump. There's a clear presence of people who want something different out of their elected officials, barring even the geographic confines of District 23, right? Mm-hmm. A lot more is possible than people think there is. So I'm hoping to hoping to bring our, de- our, our demands uh, to her office real soon. Yeah, I think that's definitely possible. Maybe kind of like a fun question. Um, <laughs> we get into something more serious. I'm going to bring it down, then I'm going to bring it back. But <laughs> Something that Karen and I have been thinking about is uh, making a predictions board for 2022. Mm. Do you have any? Ooh, that's a big one. I mean, I think I have a feeling Zephyr Teachout might have her moment this uh, next year in 2022. She's built up a really impressive progressive base. I think that she had a a great announcement coming up the floodgates. Uh, So I'm interested to see if she's able to narrow down the field enough, I think she might stand a chance, especially with the name recognition that she has. I'm really excited about our current DSA um, slate of endorsed candidates so far between uh, David Alexis, 
Iapasari Tupac and um, and Sami Namir Olivares. So I'm hoping for a repeat of DSA for the Many 2.0, taking a full uh, sweep next year. I'm watching the governor's race. I'm flabbergasted at the potential of Tom Swazi running into that race. But I think <laughs> our, our congressman, <laughs> our dear congressman. <laughs> but you know, with uh, with Tish James and Jamani Williams in the field, I have a feeling that maybe one of them might drop uh, before so too, they honestly. really get into the primaries. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So depending on that, I'll uh, I'll have a better prediction for you. <laughs> yeah. And just to clarify, Zephyr is running for attorney general. That's very yeah. exciting because most of our attorney generals have become governor in like my adult life. <laughs> Possibly even and, before that, I'm trying to remember. Right. And listen, New York City delivers governors through and through. So hopefully Bill de Blasio doesn't... Uh, <laughs> jump in the way that we think he's going to, but that doesn't, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, I'm I'm pretty sure Sawazi's running, which is going to make our um, congressional primary very interesting uh, to see uh, who else jumps in the race. But yeah, is ever teacher for an attorney general? I'm not sure who else is declared, but that, that sounds good to me. You know, I think seeing her come out from Melanie Dorigo is also really exciting that there's been a lot of, you know, even though we had a very upsetting election night across Long Island. I think the expansion into Queens for that district um, with redistricting, uh, you know, hopefully, and the impressive work that Long Island progressives have been doing over the past two years probably spells a much better uh, result for Melanie this time around. I'm just really hoping that, you know, voter turnout will increase because I think if you look out, it's almost cyclical. If you, if you watch a place like Nassau County, you know, like, there was a huge, you know, democratic wave in 2017 in basically in response to Donald Trump. Like the reason the town of Hempstead and Nassau County went democratic was just because people didn't like Donald Trump, you know? And I'm hoping that it doesn't take, if you go all the way back a long time ago to 2009, when it turned Republican, a lot of that was people who were mad about Barack Obama, like the Tea Party presence on Long Island is a thing. And now it's gotten scarier, you know, talked about this in the podcast before, but like there are like Long Island MAGA, like anti-vax groups that have been declared hate groups, Southern Poverty Law Center. So mm-hmm. I, I feel like I'm hoping that people will wake up and, and, and show up to the polls in 2022. Right. Hopefully that will happen. The way I see it, right? Like our losses are not because of the most leftmost candidates, right? It's not because people were being too lofty with their demands. It's because, you know, our party is at the behest of Jay Jacobs, right? Which I remember we also talked Mm -hmm. about last time I was on on the podcast, right? And I think that we can't just keep running campaigns as, well, I'm not that guy, right? You have to give people something to be inspired for, to look forward to. And if we don't get that, then, you know, we're going to keep throwing our arms up and saying, well, I don't know how we've turned red, right? There's there's lives at stake with that kind of. Jay Jacobs cares about Jay Jacobs and not much else. Right. (laughs) And that's an observation I've had for, I don't know what, two decades now, but it's, it's true. And it's frustrating that other people in New York state haven't noticed that yet. Right. And it, it's frustrating that is no one has come up to challenge him for that. I don't know why. It's a lot of people just going running around saying, I told you so <laughs> about Jay Jacobs, and he's gonna keep digging into his heels. Yeah, and I also think that just in the past, I don't know, 10 years, the way that the 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 left has grown in New York, mm-hmm. like 
I always tease uh, Rebecca Lynch, another friend of the podcast about this, that my first Queens Young Democrats meeting that I walked into, I was about almost 30 and everyone else was a good five years younger than me or more. And I was just like, Jerry Jacobs is an asshole. And everyone looked at me like, (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) they're like, Joe Crowley's nice to us. He gives us picnics and like, look at where, how far we've come. Like everyone in that room is much to the left of where they were in 2011. So exactly. I think that maybe it just took a while for people to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've, I've personally moved to the left. Like I didn't like JJ Gibbs, but it was for different reasons then than, than now. Right. So, or for additional reasons now right. <laughs> <that> <laughs> added to the reasons why besides his incompetence is also ideological. So I think that makes sense. And I want to kind of go back to something that you said about there's more Republicans in the city council now than there were before. I guess we can play armchair quarterback. I think there's a bunch of reasons for that. But do you do you have like a, a top reason or a top two or three reasons or? You know, I think it, it came down to, at least in the case of, of District 19, of Democrats falling victim to, unfortunately, lazy campaigning and letting Republican fear-mongering get ahead of that. Just to so, clarify for people who don't know, District 19 was Tony Avella versus Vicky Palladino. Tony Avella, who had been a state senator in New York who had caucused with Republicans versus a fascist mother of a proud boy, Vicky Palladino. And I was saying to another friend of the show, Alexis, I do not envy you. Your choices are between a fascist and a traitor. And like, that's got to hurt. Like, that's Ooh. not, that can't be fun. We actually did record an episode, but my computer ate it based mostly about District 19. So rehash it. <laughs> but yeah, let's rehash it again. Like, what, what do you think happened? You know, I think that definitely a lot of the Republican spending from folks like Stephen Ross, I don't know what influence he had in District 19, but I think we definitely saw that in District 32 with Felicia Singh in Southeast Queens, which we can get to later as well. I think that happened for a different case. But we see... A lot of the same tactics that Vicky Palladino used paralleled in Virginia around critical race theory and really just eating away at generally well-off, middle to high income, uh, single families, single family homes, uh, you know, nuclear family structures that were really afraid about what's transpired over the past year. When I sat down with Senator Schumer at uh, the Blue Bay Diner uh, a few weeks ago, uh, a retired cop came up to our table and and spoke to him about where were you during uh, the riots last year in Manhattan, right? Placing undue blame (laughs) to people over a, a massive outcry for racial justice, right? And so I think that as we get more organized, Republicans get smarter uh, at how to thwart our ability to organize around compassion. But I think Democrats have lost that, right? I think we've, especially in the case of Tony Avella, a lot of folks, I think, thought that that was a surefire win, given his name recognition, his history of being in politics probably longer than I've been alive, right? But not taking that seriously and letting your opponent write the narrative sets you up to lose your general election. And I think mm-hmm. that's incredibly disappointing. I don't think it, it, it signals that, you know, New Yorkers are, are shifting more right. It's that Republicans are taking advantage of people's anxieties and Democrats are letting them do it. Yeah, I think that's true. And I, I can't imagine him taking on those flyers that she sent out about critical race theory right. and just transphobic nonsense and a bunch of other racist crap. Like, I can't imagine right. him taking that on. Like, he's 
he's good on a one-on-one level, but I don't think that he had it in him to combat them like systemically combat that systemically from his campaign. Like I volunteered for him in 2010 when he ran for Senate and I was so angry when he caucused with the IDC. Like I've said this to many people on this podcast. He sat right there (laughs) in the chair right there and talked to my neighbors. Like I had all my neighbors in my living room, which is like, you know, way before COVID, but, and he was able to answer even the most ridiculous and offensive questions very well. Like someone asked him if Ed Koch was gay and they, they did not use that word gay. They said something else. And, you know, he was able to just be like, that's a ridiculous question. But he, he was able to say that it was a ridiculous question in what he did was he was like, you know, I needed eye surgery a couple of years ago. And right before they put me out, the anesthesiologist asked me that. And I felt like that was so skillful, right? Like he was saying it was so inappropriate to ask me that as I'm going into surgery, as it is for Mm -hmm. you to ask me that right now. And I was like, that's pretty good. But on a, on a, like a campaign is both, right? You're you're talking to people one-on-one and you're also like projecting like big messaging, you know, to the community. And I I think that that failed. It clearly failed. I mean, you know? and I think it's even clearer, right, that people don't want more of the same, but folks like Vicky Palladino took that in the completely opposite direction, not towards like Medicare for all, not towards like free public education, but in, in the sense of like, we need more police presence. We need more policing around what our kids learn in school, right? And I think mm-hmm. that we need to get not only more strategic, but aggressive in our campaigns to to speak against all the you know horrific things that our opponents say and not just feel like we can coast to victory like that. We even saw Justin Brennan in Brooklyn come very close uh, within single digits of margins of potentially losing to a Republican. And it, it, it panned out with the absentee ballot count and review of the, of the, of the votes. But it's a, a scary precedent that we're not organizing enough outside of our elections to prepare ourselves when these things come up in the actual election cycle. And there are a lot of people who did not know Vicky Palladino's history, who did not know right. like that she supports the Proud Boys and stuff like that. And when they were told right. that, they were like, oh, okay, I won't vote for her anymore. But like, if you already kicked right. in some money or a campaign, like, you know, you already did that. Right. And um, the thing about that is, is that like, there are people who are not in her district who support her. Like when I was knocking doors for you, there's a couple right. houses the Vicky Palladino signed and to- <laughs> It's going to be hard for me or if if I'm ever in that position to kind of like put myself in the shoes of that person with the Vicky Palladino sign. Because mm-hmm. like to me, I, I remember her as like, I remember like the Twitter headline or whatever, like lady yells at de Blasio and Whitestone. And I was right. like, it was something racist probably. And I click it and I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, it was. <laughs> you know, how did I know that? You know, and that's how or I remember. The maskless, or the maskless conga line. Yes. <laughs> yes. If people saw that it made national news, there was a uh, Queens Republican Party Christmas party last year and they they had a maskless conga line and uh, it was horrifying and a couple of people are hospitalized horribly. But yeah, yeah. She, she was she was on that too. So there's, there's work to be done. Do you want to comment any more about the Felicia Singh race? Yeah. You know, I think that there was a lot of bad information trickling into the district. And I think that the impact of Stephen Ross's mailers were perhaps more negative in Felicia's districts than mine when you think about neighborhoods like Bell Harbor. So just to um, clarify, are, which district was it and what neighborhood is it? 
Yes. Uh, District 32, which is like Southeast Queens, so Rockaways, Woodside, parts of Richmond Hill. And for a refresher, Stephen Ross is a Republican billionaire who's been trying to put lots of money to run negative ads against you. Right. He's a Republican to influence the Democratic primary. And so he was in favor of the Republican or just anti-Felicia Singh? Anti-Felicia Singh in some of the most disgusting ways, right? Very similar to the attacks against me. You know, he was touting me as this anti-police socialist who's going to let trash and not my words, his prostitutes run amok in the streets. Right. And and that wasn't, none of that is true. Right. Mm -hmm. But Felicia was not even a DSA endorsed candidate, right. Did not run as a socialist. And they were still messaging her as this dangerous, reckless socialist who's going to ruin your neighborhoods. You know, I remember talking to neighbors about, you know, what, what's something that's really important to you, um, you know, that you're thinking about in this election. And they tell me public safety. And I'm like, all right, so what's going on in your block in your neighborhood? And they will be like, oh no, my neighborhood's fine. This is a great place to live. I'm worried about Manhattan where like my husband goes to work. Right. Our, Our priorities have gotten so warped, I think. And, um, People see what happened uh, last summer as, you know, a signal that, you know, without police, we cannot be safe. And and clearly our imaginations have not been, you know, provoked uh, enough uh, over the past years. That's just so frustrating. It is. Like a bunch of people running into a Macy's has nothing to do with the average commuter. Precisely. Right. And now we think that looters, as they say, are the ones who are ruining our democracy. And, you know, I think Felicia ran a a soulful campaign. I think it was a necessary one to show that the Republican Party does not value or does not take into consideration a diverse voting bloc out there in Southeast Queens. I mean, you saw Senator Schumer being waved out of a rally in Southeast Queens by Republican protesters who threatened who threatened to shoot, who were making these horrific, you know, threats to Senator Schumer for coming into their neighborhoods and, and he had to leave a rally. So I think there's a lot of dangerous rhetoric that has not been challenged enough, but I think she set an important precedent for how important these fights are and that the organizing that she did is not going to leave Southeast Queens. I think it's a lot to digest. <laughs> I'm just going to be thinking about that for a while. Yeah. That's very interesting that you're talking about Senator Schumer being involved with that and you've like met with him. Do you do you think he would agree with your assessment of what happened or do you think he's on a different wavelength? I think he understands, right? You know, he's been at a lot of important fights for us in New York City from, you know, helping us with the Taxi Workers Alliance. I, I genuinely don't think that that really would have gotten done so quickly without his input as well as uh, preventing a fracked gas plant from being built in Astoria that was really at the helm of a fight for, you know, climate activists in Queens with the DSA Eco-Socialist Working Group. I think he understands what what the writing on the wall is, right? Which is why he's been involved in so many (laughs) negotiations with Build Back Better and the infrastructure Mm -hmm. bills. Seeing the cascade of how many Democrats across the political spectrum that came out for Felicia, I think he sees that... uh, it was an important fight for him to weigh in on. We'll have to revisit those fights again before 2023 when these seats are up for re-election. The one thing I guess that we need to consider is that majority or all of the city council is going to be up in two years. There's a lot of them who are coming up again because of this redistricting process. They'll, they're probably campaigning right now, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, to 
fundraise for, for their for their next for their next seats. I don't know how much you can get done in about a year, uh, especially with this new transition with a new mayor as well. We're selecting a new speaker. There's a lot of new things that are on the agenda next year. So I'd be really interested to see what the organizing is looking like to maybe tackle these candidates again. Maybe it comes uh, in the next after the next four years that these council members serve. It's going to be a big election, big elections for for many, many years uh, in New York. So we have our work cut out for us, I think. Yeah, it's kind of hard for me to wrap my head around, like going through everything again. <laughs> like I'm thinking about the midterms, obviously, and governor and all that stuff. But like thinking about city council again in 2023 is is a lot. You know, there's a lot coming on. That's definitely something to keep on the radar. And I guess that's something we'll have to ask you your predictions about next year. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll uh, plot and scheme a little bit longer and I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> Is there anything else that you uh, really wanted to talk about, even if it's not about politics? Anything that's going on, like with college campus organizing or the world of competitive karate, which I know you're a fan of? <laughs> you know, it's actually uh, great news. The our old campaign office will now be the home of uh, the karate dojo that I will I have been training at for over ten years. The dojo had closed down because they couldn't afford overhead rent costs and were really backlogged because of the pandemic. I mean, how many parents are willing to send their kids to indoor sports training, right? So I think that's another great win to close out before the end of the year. You know, I think, you know, the holiday season is coming around. We've got a lot of work to do. I think those of us who have our heads deep, deep, deep into some of this political work. Some of our family and friends have no idea what's in store for next year. But I think, you know, when we, when we start early, you know, I'll, I'll personally be door knocking for a few of our DSA candidates this weekend. I think when we start early, we become formidable opponents to the people who don't want us to deliver for our family, friends, and neighbors. So I'm really excited to get back on knocking doors, even if it's not for myself. It's been really fulfilling to support other candidates and, and hopefully send them to a victory next year. I really admire that about you because I feel like I'm, I'll be ready in January or February. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I need a little bit more of a break, but I guess the, you want to get in while the weather's good, supposedly, you know. And That too. I remember petitioning for Melanie in the snow and knocking doors. It was mm-hmm. freezing cold, right? Mm-hmm. So I think like, you know, you, you remember those moments when it's unbelievably hot or for us when it was pouring rain throughout election day on mm-hmm. June 22nd, right? You remember- But then the sun came out and, and, I, and I played Here Comes the Sun on my phone real loud. <laughs> it was and great. then everyone clapped. <laughs> yes. Just me and Lindsay, I think. Maybe. Oh, I don't remember who was Who was also there. a superstar. I'm mm-hmm. excited to see- what yeah. all of these like incredible East Queens folks will do next. We had a really great event in Alley Pond Park where we reconvened some of our East Queen all-stars and superstars and MVPs who are really excited to continue doing this work. So I know a lot of people like to think DSA is a bunch of outsiders, but you know, we're here. We're in Belrose, Little Neck, Glen Oaks, everywhere, right? So I think there's a lot of political power to be harnessed in Eastern Queens and I am thrilled to see where it goes. Yeah. And I definitely think wherever you're listening to this, you can kind of take that message home, whether you're in the United States or in another country, like getting to know your neighbors and organizing with them can be one of the most valuable and rewarding things that you can do. It's talk to your neighbors, organize your coworkers to form a union. Those are two of the most like impactful things you could do, even if you don't run for office yourself or volunteer on a campaign, just like Mm -hmm. those one-on-ones are invaluable. 
Definitely. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Um, is there anything you want people to check out online? Oh, there is a lot. You can give multiple links. It's fine. Yeah. Let me see. What's what's on the Twitterverse? (laughs) What can I, uh, what can I amplify? Um, Your your entire link tree. (laughs) But check out my whole link tree. I think something that a lot of us will be watching over uh, the next months even, I think is just what's happened with the Rittenhouse trials in Kenosha. So a lot of incredible uh, Wisconsin organizers like Rebecca Lynch Mm -hmm. uh, are doing some impeccable work. I imagine this will not come out after this happens, but on Sunday, we're anticipating a a huge uh, national day of action potentially. So I think that this could be another radicalizing moment for a lot of people. So I encourage a lot of people to Find your political home, organize with your homies. Of course, I will always ask you to join DSA, bring your friends into DSA. There will be a lot of important work that we'll be doing that does not entail uh, election work, that does a lot of this racial justice organizing. So Mm -hmm. uh, I really want folks to consider that delving back into these fights and uh, get plugged in with your local social justice organization. Yeah, 100%. And and just a note, we're recording this on the evening of November 19th, and today is, you know, a historic day in many respects in that Kyle Rittenhouse was acquitted on all charges and also the Build Back Better bill passed the House. So there's there's a lot going on. Do you want to direct people to a URL or just your Twitter? Yeah, I mean, you can follow me on Twitter at Jesslene for Queens. That's J-A-S-L-I-N-F-O-R Q-U-E-E-N-S. Probably not going to change that uh, <laughs> that app for a long time. Yeah, but no. yeah. <laughs> It rhymes. It's pretty nice. Some people will still address me as just Lee for Queens, not even just my name. I'll be sharing a lot about what's happening in the labor movement across our city, state, and nationally. I guess the other thing I would point folks to is to follow the Columbia student workers who are on strike right now. Mm-hmm. They are members of UAW, and they have been on strike since November 3rd. They're demanding livable wages, health care, protection from sexual harassment, and a fair contract as well. There are about 3,000 of them. And now that uh, the John Deere strike has quieted down, it's looking like this could be the largest active strike in the United States. Follow them on Twitter at SW underscore Columbia, C-O-L-U-M-B-I-A, or you can log on to studentworkersofcolumbia.com to not only learn about the strike, but also contribute to their strike fund that can help feed our strikers and organizers and help offset a bunch of other costs. If you're in the New York City area, we'd love to have you at the Morningside campus to join the picket line, join our rallies, and hopefully win a really life-saving contract for our grad student workers. There's so much stuff that you're involved in. I always like talking to you, Justine. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Of you can course. find me on Twitter at Miss Cherry Pie, P-I like the number pie, and you can find Karen at Karen, U-H-K-R-E-N. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast, tackling political rumors from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. If you like our podcast, please support us at our Patreon, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash feminist coffee hour, or, you know, do a Google for Patreon and feminist coffee hour. Our patrons get early releases of episodes, plus other cool perks at higher levels. If you can't support us financially, you can always give us a five-star rating on iTunes and write us a review as it helps the algorithm know we're there and that people like us, like you. Our intro and outro music is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth, and you can find her music on SoundCloud.